Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is the best science that we can find for you. It is now some amazing science, as always, on this program. Joining me is the fabulous Claire. How are you, Claire? Hello, Chris. I'm well. Uh, and do you have some science to fill in my promises that I just made our yeah. audience? As per usual, you're making big promises that... We all have to do our best to keep up with. But hey, I'm talking about a bit of a a bit of a contentious hot topic at the moment, and that is uh, natural gas. There's a few states are, are phasing out natural gas connections to all new houses. Um, so I thought I would take a look at natural gas, what it is, and just take us back to basics because a lot of us are connected to it. But I just realised I don't I don't know that much about it or um, you know take a look at some of the studies as well that evidence uh, around natural gas being you know quite detrimental to respiratory health Mm. so um, yeah increased incidence of asthma and that that sort of thing so we'll be having a look um, at some of those things and of course you know natural gas it's a greenhouse gas so there's environmental reasons there's health reasons there's we're going to look a bit into that today. Well, speaking of energy, transition there, mm. Um, mm-hmm. I am revisiting a story that oh, uh, I've put on. you love that. Yeah, I know I love it. Um, this one, I've look, I've been talking to people. Th- this is the superconductor story that I reported on a few weeks ago, that the rest of the world doesn't seem to be as excited as the physicists in the world. Mm. Um, I mean, that it's not the first time that's happened. No, it's not the first time. But look, I think this is an interesting story and I want to report on it because we actually, it, we have an answer now. It looks like it's the superconductor LK99, the room temperature superconductor, I should say, probably oh. isn't real. It probably does not, is not an actual superconductor. Um, last time I reported on, I think, some of the drama around the discovery and things, but there was too early to give an answer on the science because everyone, the world was examining it, replication efforts are underway. We have some results now, and they're quite interesting, at least to physicists. But look, that's a big thing for me to say, because it's like condensed matter physics, and that was not never my field. So, you know, the fact that I'm excited about it, surely it should be of general interest, I would have thought. I think so. Well, we're just going to, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about what, again, what superconductivity is. Uh, and right. what has been discovered about this mystery new material. For those who so, are excited about this stuff, it's it's good to have an answer. Look, I think there's something for everyone. Look, it's also a good thing of how science can work in in this day and age as well. It's a good demonstration of how science can work. Some certain areas of science, I should say. The physics areas thereof. <laughs> All right, so without any further ado, sorry, ado, on with the show. So, Chris, gas is becoming a bit of a hot topic. 
you might have heard recently both the ACT and the Victorian government's plan to stop gas connections to all new housing developments from late this year and early next year, respectively. Well, no, I, I wasn't across all of this. Pretty big news. It's big news. Getting out of gas and, yeah, it, it means no more gas heating. Cooking will be installed in any houses and, yeah, the regulations are being rolled out for environmental reasons. That's mm-hmm. what the governments are saying. It's to reduce household carbon emissions And the Victorian government state that the gas sector contributes to around 17% of Victoria's carbon emissions. So reducing that is key to meeting their net zero targets. Uh, And they they have a net zero target for 2045. Absolutely. And look, I know there, it is a controversial topic and that, you know, some people do insist that gas is a transition, useful transition fuel from, say, coal to renewables, uh, and there's debate over how long such a transition would be. But, look, if you're going to phase it out at some point, at some point mm. you need to stop installing it as well. Yeah, and it's it's only a couple of state governments who've done it so far, but no doubt many more will follow suit. But moreover from, I guess, environmental aspects of gas is there's also a growing awareness of the health risks of having and using gas in the home. So with combustion products uh, such as carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides and uh, particulates increasing the risk of asthma in, in the home. So today I just want to go back to basics a little bit and have a little bit of a chat about the science of gas and um, also a couple of the studies that have um, brought together some of the health implications of gas cooking and heating in particular. That's what we're going to do today. But first, gas. What is it? Because everyone calls it natural gas. And yes, it's a gas. But um, you probably know exactly what sort of gas it is. Are we talking methane? Yeah, it is. Now, methane, um, as it's a gas we hear a lot of. Contrary to popular belief, it is colourless and odourless. So they add odorizers to um, to methane gas, okay. natural gas, um, something called mer- mercaptan that smells, that's the sulfur rotten egg gas smell. And look, you know, um, I suspect that odorants are added to farts as well because they do, they do smell as well. <laughs> well, they are. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's like the sulfides and stuff that... Yeah, are, yeah. That, um, that anaerobic bacteria produce. It's not the methane that stinks. Uh It's your your anaerobic bacteria. Anyway, natural gas, you know, methane, it is a fossil fuel. It's formed underground when layers and layers of organic matter, in this case, mostly marine microorganisms from a very long time ago, they've decomposed under conditions that have no oxygen, Um, And then under intense heat and pressure over millions of years, um, these microbes blossom into organic hydrocarbons. (laughs) And, yeah, so the energy that the decayed organisms are holding, the potential energy, was originally um, obtained from the sun via photosynthesis. So these are photosynthetic microorganisms that, um, you know, store their energy and then over many millions of years have become hydrocarbons so they should really rebrand fossil fuels as like solar energy and then just totally organic solar energy 
<laughs> yeah, it, it just depends on when you, you know, whether you look at that energy from millions of years ago or from right now. Mm. If you're looking at it from millions of years ago, it's just sunlight. Exactly. And to extract natural gas, you dig wells into rock and what's brought up is pretty much a mixture of things. It is methane, but it does contain other things. But once the gas is brought to the surface, the impurities that are in it, things like water, sulfur coke, sulfur compounds and other hydrocarbons are removed leaving behind mostly methane so the natural gas that you that comes out is methane now extracting the gas and burning the gas is a major and growing contributor to climate change as we have already talked about the gas itself being methane is the second largest greenhouse gas contributor Mm. to global climate change only beaten out by the number one global contributor to climate change change carbon dioxide yeah so um, it's, it's and, i believe it's um it's more potent greenhouse gas it's just there's less of it and it doesn't stick around as long that's right it is a more potent greenhouse gas so it will heat more mm. right yeah. yeah um so it's only been out by carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is what you get once you burn Um, So, you know, it makes sense why people are looking to move away from using methane gas to equip their homes and moving towards, um, you know, electric appliances, electric heating, cooling, um, that can all be powered with sustainable energy sources. You know, the future is electric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as you are powering them with sustainable energy sources, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, But it's not just an environmental issue in this gas electrifying home discussion uh, what's often brought up is the health risks around gas, so especially respiratory issues. So one review that I wanted to discuss is called Health Risks from Indoor Gas Appliances, and this is by Ben Ewald, George Crisp, and Marion Carey, and it's published in the Australian Journal of General Practice. And they outline a little bit about how natural gas can be a respiratory irritant. Um, and it starts with the flame on a gas stove, and, you know, the methane combines with oxygen, from the air and it produces heat and light and, you know, carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and, and water. But at the same time, some of the nitrogen from the air, because, you know, our air is 80% nitrogen, some of the nitrogen from, from the air is oxidised in the flame and this, can, this actually creates several, uh, several different nitrogen oxides. So it can be nitrogen dioxide, nitric oxide and nitrous oxide. Now... According to the authors, nitrogen dioxide, it's a, it's a respiratory irritant and it can directly cause airway constriction and um, can cause sensitization to allergens. So, right. in fact, it's been shown in population studies to be associated with both the development of asthma and asthma attacks. So the authors did a meta-analysis of 19 different studies and found that for a child with asthma, who lives in a home with a gas stove, 30% of their risk of asthma is from the stove. That's that's a lot. Yeah, it seems like quite a significant amount. Uh, but also thinking, um, so that's kids with asthma, but the researchers have also estimated that across the community, around 12% of childhood asthma is attributable to the use of gas cooking stoves. That's onset of asthma, not you know, asthma being a pre-existing condition that's, you know, being made worse by the stove. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, I've seen some of the bets in the studies and, like, these are things where they are trying to contribute 
co- um, yeah, connections, this kind of stuff. Mm. And it's not, it's hard to be completely definite about these things. Sure. From what I understand. Yeah. And that, yeah. like, you know, if you look at all the things that could be attributed asthma to and you add them all up, the yeah. different percentages, it does adds up, say, to more than 100% because right. everything yeah. is kind of connected somewhat. Yeah. But it yeah. still means it's a significant contributor. It still means it's a significant contributor. And um, that's quite interesting because this, this one paper that they referred to quite a bit looks at the risk, the respiratory risk in um, gas heating rather than cooking. It was one in the New South Wales schools. So the researchers looked at the difference between gas heaters that were flued and unflued. Um, like a chimney. Uh, like a chimney, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sure there's a word for this. It's a chimney. Um, so they blinded the study by building each classroom in these schools, had an enclosure, and they had both a fluid and an unflued gas heater in them. And then and then teachers could control the heating, but, but they didn't tell the teachers which type of heater that they turned on each week. So the teachers would put the heater on without knowing whether it was fluid or not. Mm-hmm. And then they tracked, they tracked the, the health issues and respiratory issues within the classroom. And what they found was there was a significant, uh, statistically significant increase in respiratory symptoms on the weeks that the unflued heaters were right, on compared okay. to the fluid heaters. So that was sort of like quite a nice study, well, nicely designed study, but um, really sort of showed that, the, that, there are, that there are real short-term respiratory impacts for gas heaters in, in those sorts of circumstances. Yes, so there, there you go. That's, mm. you know, with, with um, both environmental and I guess, you know, a health uh, push now, it's going to be interesting to watch this space and start to see where the research goes and um, start to make a change away from using methane gas to heat and cook in our homes. Do you um, do you have gas in your kitchen or in your heating? Yeah, but after reading this, I am um, definitely going to make a move to induction stovetops because they are actually the technology has come a really long way, and induction um, stovetops are they boil water incredibly quickly and you know the, it's it's um it's on par with or better than than gas anyway so why not exactly i think we're lost we're not lost not even any short range radio signals yet except for a single very powerful radio emission of course a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment the science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling of course that's uh Mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am once again find myself talking about room temperature superconductors uh, <laughs> or substances that are not room temperature superconductors, as the case may be. Right. I, I hope you're not giving too much away when you say that. I gave it away in the introduction, Claire. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, look, but first of all, I should say, what is a superconductor? What is superconductivity? So this, I'm going to answer my own question. This is a yeah, uh, superconductor is a material that basically has zero electrical resistance. And superconductivity is the property that 
they have, the materials have. It was discovered like a long time ago, I think about 100 years ago. Um, they found out that certain materials very close to absolute zero would drop to zero, suddenly drop to zero resistance. Um, and then over subsequent decades of the 20th century, new materials were found that had higher temperatures at which they would achieve this superconducting state. Mm. Um, there was great hope in the temperatures were rising all the time. There was great hope, I think, in the 1980s that room temperature superconductors that would revolutionise technology were just around the corner, but they never really materialised. So we do have superconductors these days, um, but they have to be cooled, say, with liquid nitrogen. And plenty of broken promises. Plenty of broken promises. But yeah, they are still used in like small kind of uses for electrical distribution. I mean, some cities have used them um, for large amounts of electricity over short distances. Um, and they're also used in things like magnetic levitation for trains. They're great for magnetically levitating trains, except, of course, like I said, you need to keep things at uh, a ridiculously low temperature. Hang um, on. So are, there, are they actually used for... For magnetically levitating trains? They are. They are. Um, again, it's difficult. It's an expensive thing to do because you need to cool things with liquid nitrogen. So, yeah, uh, the, the dream is a superconductor will work at room temperature and ambient pressure because there have been ones achieved at a higher temperatures, but under like temp pressures hundreds of times out of the atmosphere. Um, so one that could work in normal conditions could like be used basically with lossless energy transmission. So you wouldn't have using, elect using electrical power for large distances. Um, your computer, say for instance, wouldn't waste energy turning it into heat. Um, and you could have magnetic levitating trains. As well as all kinds of interesting new um, medical devices. Because you often have things like... Um, you know, MRI machines often mm. will use superconductors, but again, need um, to be chilled greatly um, to achieve that. So, yeah, so there's hope. There's there's hope for like it's, it's kind of the holy grail of material science or condensed matter physics, put it that way. So this is why there was some excitement in the physics community when a substance called LK99 was announced a few weeks ago. Online, mm -hmm. not in peer-reviewed papers. They kind of... I covered the drama last time I talked about this. They rushed out some uh, some papers because I think they were worried that they would get scooped and also worried about who would claim credit for this. Um, so go back and listen to that episode if you want to find out some about some of the drama. Um, but the substance is called LK99. Uh, the LK stands for Lee and Kim. That is Sukbei Lee and Jihoon Kim, two Korean chemists who discovered it. And the 99 stands for 1999 because that's when they discovered it and so they've been working on it ever since. So clearly they believe that there is something to this. Um, and like I said, they thought they were getting really close to this, verifying this. They rushed out some papers and uh, essentially expose it to the world. And then the whole world starts examining this. And pretty quickly, in a couple of weeks, it seems like um, people have come to conclusions about what's really going on here. So first of all, like, when you look at it, this is, it's interesting. It's like I said, it's an interesting test case showing how science works today. So how, again, non-peer-reviewed papers go kind of rapid global peer review uh, by all their global peers to try and replicate the results and also pull apart the evidence that was presented. So the evidence consisted of a couple of key pieces of information. Um, there was reporting a drop to in the resistance, as you would expect for something called a superconductor. They said yep. a drop to about zero resistivity around 127 degrees Celsius. 
Uh, and magnetic levitation, which is a key property of superconductors. And that the primary evidence there was a video which showed a sample of LK99 um, semi-levitating, I suppose, above a magnet. <laughs> so, okay, so the thing is that a... Um, and this is, I think it's kind of crazy that the evidence basically is a video of a little flake of material... <laughs> On a magnet, um, rather than you know, what, because you think it's pretty easy to fake. No, well, yeah, I mean, he's yeah, you could fake it, but like you know, you when you think about um, scientific evidence, you probably think about complicated graphs and right, those yeah, sort of things. Yeah. And this is like a video. Um, yeah, I mean, how else are you going to show levitation? Exactly, exactly. So, okay, so this is the property of superconductors. What superconductors do is, well, apart from having um, zero resistance they have this mysterious property called the meissner effect where they essentially expel magnetic fields from the material so this means that they will levitate above magnet they'll be repelled by the magnet effectively but not only that as well as that they they um the property that they exhibit is something called flux pinning which is not only are they kind of levitating above the magnet, but they are kind of pinned in place by the magnetic field, which means that not only do they float above it, but if you were to turn the magnet upside down, the superconducting material then floats below the magnet. Whoa. So they hold in place. You can move the magnet around and the superconductor will move with it. That flux pinning is crazy. Yeah. So this video was less convincing because it wasn't fully levitating. Like a corner of it was still touching the magnet. And it was really hard to tell from this limited video that there was any kind of flux pinning going on. It was just like a flux There was no flux pinning. Well, you couldn't really see. It was just this thing kind of semi-levitating. And, you know, (laughs) other things can cause materials to levitate above a magnet. Um, For instance, um, there is a property called diamagnetism which is where a, a material that when you apply a magnetic field to it, it creates a magnetic field in the opposite, sort of opposite to it, that will then kind of repel the magnetic field. Um, water has this property. And so you can find videos online of people doing things like levitating frogs above a powerful magnet, because frogs are mostly water. don't know if you knew that. Aww. So people were saying, oh, it could be just be diamagnetism, um, not actual flux pinning and Meissner effect. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, attempts were made to replicate it. Apparently the recipe given in the in the papers was not that easy. It took a lot of efforts, but you had the whole world looking at this. And meanwhile, theorists were trying to do calculations to figure out what was really going on. Now, one of the clues to what was going on was when you looked at the, the change in resistance. So the below 127 degrees, it had seemingly zero resistance, but there was like, it wasn't a neat drop. And there was one key temperature where it dropped a lot in um, resistivity. And that was at 104 degrees Celsius, actually 104.8 degrees Celsius. And certain physicists, and a few people have kind of claimed credit for this, looked at it and said, that, that number looks familiar. And what they figured out is that there is this material called cuprous sulfide, which is Cu2S, so it's copper and sulfur, uh, that could very well be in this material in impurities. Like the material is known to have like copper in it. It's, so, it's a, so I should say the material is a lead apatite, which is a phosphor-containing lead compound, but it was doped with copper impurities. But as part of the manufacturer's material, they use sulfur. So they're saying that cuprous sulfide transitions a very low a very rapid drop in resistivity at around 104.8 exactly so 104.8 degrees celsius and it was quite 
easy for there to be cuprous sulfide impurities in this material that could um, explain the mysterious drop in resistance at this temperature. So that was one of the clues that was going on. They figured out that Mm. when they tried to replicate it, they came up with this this, um, Cu2S in in their samples. And then the other thing, of course, was the levitation. So people were trying to basically trying to replicate the material, then trying to work out what they'd actually made. And what they found was, I found this quite interesting, something that's kind of the opposite of what you'd expect. So it turned out it wasn't diamagnetism, although people were proposing that. It was, in fact, um, ferromagnetism. Um, <laughs> so ferromagnetism, as you might know, is probably things like iron, where yeah. iron is attracted to a magnet. But if you've ever played with iron filings, you'll yeah. notice that they um, they don't just all they, they basically form shapes when you put them on a magnet. They kind it's of follow really cool. the yeah the magnetic field lines. And certain people showed that you can produce exactly the same effect as seen in this video of the LK99 with a basically something with an insulator with iron filings glued to it. And so further examination of the um, of this material when people replicated it, looking at the structure of it under, say, X-ray diffraction and looking at what was in it, and also theoretical calculations showed that it was probably ferromagnetic. And that was what was responsible for this weird oh, semi-levitation. Dear. So, yeah, it was like... So, yeah, it turned out not to at all have been a superconductor. It was a couple of other little properties, impurities and things that are getting in mm. the way and causing it to look like it could have been a superconductor. Um, Come back when you've got your flux pinning. Exactly, when you've got your flux pinning. Um, look, I guess it's still a question of how they were working on it for so long and not didn't figure all of this out. Mm. Um, but it is also a really interesting demonstration of science and work really, really fast, you know. Um, now, superconduction is a huge prize. So that's why there was so much attention, so much effort put into trying to replicate this. I mean, you don't normally have, you know, claims of non-peer-reviewed papers get examined in great detail by labs all around the world. But this is such a big prize, if it was real, that, of course, everyone was really interested in it. Um, so don't expect this to happen every time someone makes outrageous claims. But like, it was it was really good to see, yeah, science at work. This particular kind of uh, read of science, I suppose to say, um, disappointing the result, I guess. But we won't have our um, our flying trains everywhere very soon. But look, it's who knows? You know, the 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 progress towards superconductors is still gradually improving. This maybe would not have been the breakthrough we were hoping for, but uh, maybe one day it will come true and there will be a real room temperature superconductor that, yeah, we'll have had a dry run for what it looks like. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 
or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.